You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the website. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. First of all, I like to issue an apology, an apology to football, or as you guys would call it, soccer. Yes, us and us alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've been throughout my entire life, I must say, rather prejudiced towards football. I'm going to say football because it's just, you know, it's near and dear to my heart now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll forgive you. Never, the Americans never, forgive you, Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> In the name of all <laughs> Americans, we forgive you. <laughs> yeah, we, we speak for the 50 states. I, I talked to them all. They all decided, you know, you're, you're okay. It's you're okay. good by us. It's okay. It's, it's a, a peculiar game, and I never really got into it. Like, I've never seen a proper football match all the way through. And I always kind of got bored, and I was a little bit, like, anti. You know, like, when you're, when you're not really... It's not really that you've got something something profoundly against it, but you're just like uh, persistently prejudgmental, you know? And whenever you see it, you're just like, oh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that, that's exactly how it felt for, for basically all my life. And then last weekend, I watched the finale because I was coerced. The, the finale of the European <laughs> uh, Championship Cup between uh, Italy and England. And it was really interesting. I watched the entire, like the entire, well, it was not even 90 minutes, it was 120 minutes or something because of all the extensions that they had. And it was, it was really interesting. And I realized that I've always acknowledged it as a sport because I know that it's super exhausting and super tough, you know, to run around on such a big uh, field all the time um, and to precisely shoot a ball like that. I've always admired that. But now I realize that I've been underestimating it as a game as well as a form of play mm. with its strategies and its flow and its dynamic. And I just wanted to say sorry to everyone I've wronged in my life by saying like football is boring. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that you coming from Germany, Stefan, you're pretty sincere in needing to make that apology because you say how you were coerced into watching it. And, and years ago I was actually in Germany when the world cup was happening and they were playing in it. And I remember walking by all of these very intense watch parties, basically anywhere people could gather. So as I understand it, the Germans take football pretty seriously. And so you're you're something of an outlier in that regard. But I'm sure your friends and family are happy that you've finally come around. <laughs> you finally have become proper German. That's <laughs> right. I'm wearing like a, <laughs> like a mustache and that's like, now I'm a proper German. <laughs> <laughs> You also had you had a correction, Aaron. You, you said you wanted to correct yourself on something you've said on the last episode, right? Yes, a correction and a thank you to uh, a longtime friend and actually a fellow philosophy graduate of mine, uh, James, whom hopefully, dear listeners, you will be uh, meeting shortly because he has a lot of interesting views from which the podcast would benefit. But I was catching up with him the other day, delighted to hear he's actually uh, a religious listener to the With a Terrible Fate podcast. So James, thank you for that. And being a fellow graduate of philosophy, he pointed out to me uh, that 
as I guess is typical of the podcast tone versus what we would, you know, claim in written analysis, I made a claim that was far too strong and kind of surprisingly so in the last episode and actually ties into what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I believe when we were talking about Earthbound with Max, I made a rather flippant observation uh, that graphics have nothing to do with the storytelling of video games and the differences in, in graphics don't make any kind of impact, whereas there are all these other aspects of video games like interactivity and use of text that are much more material. Uh, So, dear listeners, if you, like James, were very surprised and a little bewildered by that, uh, I would just like to say that certainly advances in graphics such as, for instance, uh, you know, 16-bit graphics versus the much higher fidelity, high-resolution graphics that we have today can make very material differences. All that I was suggesting, and that I'm sure we'll continue to talk about in this in future episodes, is that nowadays when the discourse focuses solely on relatively marginal improvements on graphics, those oftentimes don't have readily realizable implications for big differences in the storytelling of video games, whereas there are other differences that can be made in how a game is designed and represented that can have much more material narrative impacts. So that is the more measured thing that I would have said had I had my philosopher hat on uh, and not been so incensed and in the podcast bubble. And James, I want to thank you, my friend, for pointing that out to me and, uh, and, and good to have someone in the audience who can be the virtual conscience of the podcasters, as it were. Oh, yeah, I think that would be generally pretty cool. Like, uh, to all the listeners out there, if you, ha- if you find something, if you notice something where we might be uh, off base or where we go too far or not far enough or where we just say something that can be uh, factually inaccurate, that can happen on a podcast, it's a conversation. Like, we don't have, it's just the three of us here, we don't have anyone sitting in the background who, you know, simultaneously does research and feeds us new information in case... Uh, we say something wrong, uh, then please feel free to write in to podcast.withaterriblefate.com because we always appreciate such corrections. I'm training my dog, Evie, to be our fact checker live, but oh. with, without the opposable thumbs, it's a little challenging for her. So we might be a few weeks out from that yet. Ah, I could do that, though. If we need to make a correction and then I need to edit it in afterwards, I could use like a dog barking sound. <laughs> 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 It, it's a nice thought, but I, I think if we used Evie's bark, we would lose a lot of listeners along the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, dear listeners, at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free and independent. There are no advertisements, there are no paywalls that you may run into, and instead we rely entirely on your support. So if you have some how do you say, like some additional income, like some spare income? Uh, disposable income. Disposable yes. income, yes. Bonus monies, I believe, is the technical term. Yes, if you have a lot yes. more money and you, you don't know what to do with it, then why not go to patreon.com slash withaterriblefate and find out how you can support us. Our main story today is about an announcement that uh, I found quite interesting. It is the Steam Deck produced by Valve a maybe at first peculiar seeming device that is, I think that's fair to say, somewhere between a PC and a Nintendo Switch because it's it markets itself or Valve markets it as a, a handheld a PC. 
Yes, yeah, somewhere between a, a a PC, a Nintendo Switch, and the Sega Nomad. It looks strikingly <laughs> like. <laughs> it has that Sega look to it, right? I thought that was my first impression as well. Yes, yes, very. Uh, you know, we were talking about graphics, right? It's it does feel like a '90s design throwback too. Can you imagine how many bits this thing has? <laughs> <laughs> it's made by Valve, and uh, Valve obviously is not only associated with uh, with Half Life, with Counter Strike, with Portal, but also obviously with Steam. Um, so it is a very well esteemed, if you <laughs> forgive my ridiculous uh, wordplay. <laughs> no wordplay is too too shabby for me. As an aside, <laughs> this is why we do the podcast in English rather than German, though, because Stefan, bless his heart, has enough facility <laughs> with English to make terrible dad to jokes. make puns. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm not even a father. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, so the thing is that um, Valve announced the Steam Deck uh, exactly on the day that pre-orders started for the Nintendo Switch OLED model that we spoke of, uh, about last week, which is rather peculiar. So it seems that this is what while they say they're they don't or their marketing messaging is like they don't really seem to want to go in direct competition with the Nintendo Switch, and it's not going to be our focus for the conversation today but evidently so it is a device that you hold in your hands to play video games and you can slide it into a dock and then play on a tv or on a on a, a computer monitor and so it is for what it's worth pretty comparable in many ways i think not not a mistake either that those uh were planned in and around the same time the timing that is crazy on the day almost as if valve my impression is that valve was holding off on this because clearly they've been working on it for a long time. Like they haven't started last week. They've been working on it for a long time and then sitting on and waiting until Nintendo makes their move to announce whatever comes after the Switch or as a Switch upgrade. And then they saw, okay, it's going to be an OLED model. So for everyone who hasn't listened to the last week's episode, it's just going to be a screen upgrade. It's not going to be a substantial upgrade to the Switch. And then they saw their, their window opening and were able to say, hey, we're basically making, without without explicitly saying that, we're basically making an actual Switch Pro. That's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from Valve here. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, I'm excited to explore this uh, with you guys and hopefully hear from some people in our audience, given that we're all self-professed um, console guys as opposed to PC guys. So uh, maybe maybe a little out of our depth, but uh, I, I think it's a really interesting tie-in um, between everything that we've been discussing on the show prior with regard to gaming libraries um, and the way that different hardware and modalities can impact the kinds of stories that we can experience through video games. So uh, even if it is something that, you know, in terms of Valve's approach is, is just designed to compete with the Nintendo Switch, I, I think it is a, a really interesting piece of hardware that in some ways is old. They've tried things like this before. In some ways is new. It's, it's not quite as it was before. And, and so it can be an interesting way of exploring where gaming might be going next, not only in terms of the PC, but in terms of PC and consoles uh, in conversation with one another. Yeah, and of course, because we operate within the framework of With a Terrible Fate, we're going to look specifically at this from an angle of how uh, video game stories are uh, impacted by such a, I'm going to say, such a hybrid 
device. And we're going to do that by discussing two main questions that we want to address today. Uh, one is on a more abstract lev level, how the materiality or the like the, the hardware of, of, a, of a gaming device relates to video game stories. And the second part is how that is how that is specifically the case for the Steam Deck uh, in correlation to uh, PC gaming. But before we get into that, let's first introduce the device a little bit to our listeners out there because we've I've got a couple of facts uh, collected here. So it is essentially marketed as a handheld PC with full functionality. They're, they're not coming from the console angle, but they're saying this is basically a PC that you can play in your hands. It has a screen size that's identical to the OLED Switch. It's a seven inch screen, 720p resolution, and um, a touchscreen. So it's for what it's worth, that's I think one of the key things that makes it so similar to the Switch. Beyond the look of it as well, I think it's also the idea that you can switch between the playing something handheld and actually docking it onto a TV or to a computer monitor, whatever, whichever you like, which uh, I think that, um, for, for a, uh, uh, sort of a handheld PC, I think that's kind of the perfect option, especially since with PC libraries, you can range from so many different types of games. It's not like everything is a big console game. Some of them are smaller puzzle type games or, you know, throwback types that maybe you don't want to play on a huge TV. You just want to see almost as if you're playing a Nintendo game. Yeah, it has it differentiates itself from the Switch a little bit by saying that they don't have they're gonna make a dock for this thing, but they don't have it ready yet. It's not really uh, there's no price tag on it, but it has a USB-C port and you can use any USB-C dock to slide this thing in and then it's going to be a very similar experience to the Switch like it's going to pop up on your on your TV. However, the controllers are not detachable. The controllers are fixed on the device, so you're going to have to have another controller uh, to play on your on your screen. It is also it's a bit chunkier than the Switch. It's like a, a black chunky device. That's where the Sega look comes from, I think. Yeah. It's got two full-sized sticks that are in line, so they're not offset like Nintendo and Xbox do. It's more like a Sony uh, stick design. Two sets of buttons on either side, four triggers, a touchpad, which is... That is something probably of its standout features, that below each stick on the left and right side, um, you have like a square touchpad that you can use to simulate mouse input. I think that's something that will be one of its key selling points in comparison to um, other other input devices, basically. Yes, especially since I think you run the risk of cutting off a huge swath of the library if you don't have an option like that, right? Strategy games, for example. Yep. On the back side, you have a couple of programmable buttons, and then here's just a tiny list of features that I found uh, striking it's got a built-in microphone. It's got a, gy a gyroscope, so you can it can find its orientation in the room, and you can like lean the device forward, for example. Six axis, like for PlayStation gamers out there. It's got an ambient uh, light sensor to automatically adjust brightness. It's got a Wi-Fi connector, but no cellular connector, so it's not something you can connect to the internet uh, with when you're on a train or something. It's got a headphones jack, a headphone jack, and what I find really precious, I have literally. I've literally been cheering when I heard this integrated Bluetooth. <laughs> Honestly, it seems so ridiculous to be happy about this, but it's just the Switch doesn't have an integrated Bluetooth connector. You can't connect like AirPods to the Switch. 
just like that. You need a dongle. And the PS5 doesn't have one either. It's like as if modern uh, like console uh, companies haven't noticed that throughout the last 15 years, Bluetooth basically became the market standard for headphone connect connection. And luckily, this uh, the Steam Deck does have that. So, ah. I think that speaks to Valve more generally. I mean, they seem to be... They they seem to be uh, more so having their finger on the pulse of what uh, people just are used to and what they what they like. So I've got my own problems with Valve, but I think if there's one thing you can't say about them, it's that they're stuck in you know 2006 or something. I uh, I totally share the sentiment about how unexpectedly exciting Bluetooth is because I remember getting my first <laughs> pair of proper wireless headphones and then when I discovered that I couldn't use them with my PlayStation uh, 4 or 5 or the Switch, I, I thought I was losing my mind or there was a setting I hadn't turned on or something. I just, I couldn't conceive of that not being the case. <laughs> like, what? I was on the other end of that realization because we were trying to play a game together. That's right. No, I remember. No, this is funny because we were co-oping like probably something that Miyazaki wrote to hurt us, right? And we ended up yeah. having to do like a Facebook Messenger call in the background while we were playing together because our stupid headphones couldn't just connect with our gaming systems in the year like 2020 or 2019 or whenever it was. Oh my goodness. I will say though, to per perhaps in Sony and Nintendo's defense, right? And if, if listeners somehow aren't aware of this, I'm not an engineer. I don't have a technical background, right? But one of my very good friends who actually uh, contributes his work on the development side of the, the Beautiful With a Terrible Fate website, for instance, Nick, uh, is an engineer. And one of the things that he has bemoaned to me in the past is actually how hard it is to manage the Bluetooth standard because... As he describes it, it's it's wild to hear him tell this story. There's basically this like shadow council of like various decision makers in the tech world that like determine and update the Bluetooth standard on like a semi-arbitrary basis. And, and it's not always like a uniform update. So there are different versions of it that are still out there and it's it's pretty heterogeneous in terms of the ways that different devices use it. And so it, it sounds like just a, a true dystopian nightmare to try to keep up with this particular like technical integration. So very frustrating for us, but Sony, Nintendo, everyone else, I kind of get it. I realize it's not as easy as one, two, three. Yeah, and it's, it is also the case that the Steam Deck generally prides itself on flexibility. Like you can, mm. you can literally just, it's not only like a switch in a sense that you can plug it into a dock and play it on your TV with a controller, but you can also plug it into a dock, have it on a computer monitor and plug in a mouse and a keyboard and you can use it as if it were a desktop PC. And I think this is what, what makes this device stand out a little bit for when it comes to the power to what it actually can do the comparison. We're not going to go into too much detail. We're not digital foundry here, right? But the, the, what I've heard is that it's comparable to the Xbox One and the PS4. So it is quite a bit more powerful than the Nintendo Switch. At the same time, it is not uh, a PS5 or an Xbox One X. It's got a battery. Uh, the battery is supposed to last between two to eight hours, depending on what you do. I would assume that if you play Red Dead Redemption 2 on highest 
highest graphics settings, it'll be dead in like one and a half hours, probably. By the loading screen. Will it be Red Dead but, in one and a half <laughs> hours, Stefan? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, just, I just find the idea so funny that by the time Red Dead Redemption 2 loads, the battery's dead. <laughs> I also find myself wondering, and I, I don't know if you guys have read anything about this, but how hot it's going to be, because uh, I'll be honest with you guys, sometimes my Nintendo Switch little engine that could that it is will get kind of hot. And so for it to be a truly like portable PC, I worry about, you know, like going to bed, popping on a game and I don't know, setting my comforter on fire. Yeah, really. That's something something to think about. Yeah, it is. It's it's one of the reasons why I'm going to hold off on buying it um, because I want to first hear about how hot this thing gets, how loud. We were all we were all uh, alive and and gaming when the PlayStation Three was first released, and it burned several people's homes down. So maybe we wait yes. for the second wave <laughs> to see what happens. Well, it's got it's running on a, a custom built Steam OS, uh, though it is it's I you can imagine it a little bit like it's a Switch like interface combined with what Steam already has, which is the big picture mode. So you can just play it on your on your TV screen. It is pretty flexible though, like you can install Windows or any other kind of uh, firmware on it if you like. Um, it is also not limited to Steam. This is important to emphasize because you can install any app on this device. You can install the Epic Game Store. You can, for example, also install the Microsoft Store and you can synchronize everything with your Microsoft Game Pass library and play play those games on there. So um, if we think about the game libraries expanding into new forms of or new experiences, new modes of play, then it's not just Steam. It's anything that runs on a PC, really. You know, I, I read uh, when we were talking about doing this episode, I read an article that... Um just popped up on my phone that was talking about uh, Gabe Newell was was basically talking about how um, the price point for the Steam Deck like they're they're kind of he he basically said everything but they're taking a bath with it and it, it does kind of seem that way where at first blush you think well this is a if if what they're saying is true then this is a gaming PC you know at a very affordable price um, but then you think well the amount of money that they have made with Steam. I think that to give more people access to the Steam platform is really where, I mean, that 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 must cancel out any loss that they expect to be taking with this $350, 350 euro price point. Yeah, prices are exactly, maybe I should mention first. So yeah, it comes in three models. All of these, the models vary only in, in hard drive size. All of these sizes are, SSD. And um, the smallest standard model is 64 gigabytes and it will cost $400. I'm just rounding up a little. It's 399. It will cost 400. The mid-ranged one is 256 gigabytes. It costs $530. And the biggest one is 512 gigabytes and costs $650. The storage can be expanded with micro SD cards as well. But I think overall, um, you're absolutely right there. And I think we have to consider that from a console perspective, 650 is uh, quite a lot. From a PC gamer's perspective, 650 is super affordable for a gaming PC. And that's interesting, though. I mean, I, I want to dig into more of the things it can do for storytelling. But from a consumer perspective, that it, it's really interesting what you just said, Steph, on the difference between the the 
console gamer and the PC gamer perspective because it raises the question of whom this is really for, right? Because if you are trying to make PC gaming more accessible to console gamers, you're right, like $650, especially for something that's primarily handheld, like that, that is a huge step up in price, right? Versus for PC gamers, like, is it more affordable than a fully built out gaming rig? Absolutely, right? But it raises the question then of whether they would really rather have this than a fully built out gaming rig, or if they'd like to have it in addition to that gaming rig, right? So I, I think it's it's really interesting because it kind of is in that no man's land of price. And I, I wonder how people are going to react to that. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious about that as well. And we're going to find out relatively soon. In December this year already, it's going to come out. Pre-orders, I think, have are going to start next week or something. But so let's go ahead and frame this thing in a, from a little bit more theoretical angle. Because what we really want to think about now is, now that we've got to know the device a little bit, um, we want to think about what does the, what is the connection between gaming hardware and gaming storytelling and Aaron you already hinted at that in your in your correction early in this show yeah so let's talk about this a little and and dear listeners I want to be clear especially given that this is a new piece of hardware I mostly want to gesture at some uh, perhaps different ways for you to think about the ways in which this new hardware might make new stories possible uh, and get your gears turning in that way uh, and then if you have ideas, you know, you can share them with us, write to us. Uh, maybe we can talk about them in, in future shows. But it is something that's near and dear to my heart, uh, not least of which because uh, if you haven't heard the origin story of With a Terrible Fate or haven't heard it in a while, uh, you know, it started out with me not only analyzing Majora's Mask, but also doing it on the occasion of Majora's Mask being remade for the Nintendo 3DS. Uh, from the Nintendo 64 before that, right? And that was a sh significant shift in hardware, right? It was a change from a stationary console that was just plugged into your TV and you pop in the game cartridge and play the game whenever you want to, to something that was fully mobile, you can take wherever you want. It had new features like a gyroscope, very, at least superficially different, right? And as I sat down to really think about the ways in which that hardware might change the game uh, and then subsequently played the remake, uh, it seemed like it was making a significant difference. Uh, and we can we can link to a whole article about that in the show notes, but the long and the short of it is that, especially in a game like Majora's Mask, where the whole conceit is that you have access to this kind of pocket dimension, it's a very different experience uh, and very different narrative impact for the player to be able to access that from a single point in physical space in their actual world versus being able to access it wherever they want to go. It gives the impression that the universe of Termina in the game is something that exists parallel to the player's world rather than as something that's intrinsically dependent on a certain location in that world, which ends up being really interesting, right? So, but especially with that as the way that um, the way that with the terrible fate started back when the switch came out, um, what like four years ago at this point? That's crazy to me that it's already been that long. Mm, oh my goodness! Yeah, uh, yeah cr crazy. I remember as a total digression. I was hunting available switch stock uh, to get my own switch. Um, back when Logan was in theaters. Anyone remember Logan, that uh, <laughs> little remembered Wolverine <laughs> movie? It is an old console by now, yeah. It is, yeah. And I, you know, props to Nintendo, I think, for continuing to support it and develop it in new ways with, with this new model that they're putting out. But I think one of the things that was really interesting to me when the Switch came out was that 
all of the new functionality that it had and this ability to be both something you could pop into your TV and something you could take on the go, given where I had been before with Majora's Mask, it just made me really interested in the new kinds of stories that could be told through that new kind of hardware, right? Um, and I really haven't seen that come to fruition yet in actual games that have been made. But I think, you know, as, as Stefan said, part of what we do when we theorize about the storytelling of video games, right, is explore the full range of possibilities that's out there that we can be excited about, even if they haven't been made actual in real video games yet. Right? We, do, we do plenty of the analysis of real video games, too, but it's, it's a healthy mix. Um, I ended up thinking, and, and I wrote an article about this, too, that we can uh, link in the show notes that the different modes of engagement between the different control inputs that the Switch has and also the different uh, modes of presentation between the um, handheld version and the version you can pop into your TV, those kinds of dynamic changes and in interfaces could make for really interesting storytelling possibilities. And now, Stefan, I know as we started talking about this uh, and brainstorming before the show, uh, that popped out pretty immediately to you as a tie-in with, with some of the critical theory you're more familiar with, right? Yeah, exactly. I've been thinking about the dispositive and the apparatus uh, theory. Um not going to go too much into depth here because those would be conversations that would warrant an entire episode, at least one, I would say. But uh, <laughs> so basically the idea of this positive as well as apparatus theory is that um, we should include the materiality of a medium in our analysis of what this, what the stories tell, you know, or which kind of stories are being told that can go pretty deep it goes from such things like um, this, the default comparison to explain this would be the comparison between the cinema, like the big screen and daytime TV, the small screen, where just just as a brief as some brief observations or some brief thoughts is that you've got like with film, you've got like a, a whole materiality to the way how films are produced. Like not until a couple of years ago, it was the case that um, that you actually had film reels, right? And someone needed to switch on a different projector. And it is significant that the images in a cinema are projected from the back to a big screen at the front. And you are sitting, that's part of the dispositive. So on the way that the entire event that's happening, basically, you're sitting in the dark. You have speakers around you. You're fully focused. It is not warranted that you speak to other people or have your phone turned on, right? So going to the cinema, including such things like purchasing popcorn in advance and so on, afterwards standing outside uh, and chatting about the film, those are all part of what makes going to the cinema or going to the movies an um, event. And it's all part of this, this positive of going to the cinema. Whereas on a small screen, you have like an infinite flow of content that constantly goes on in daytime TV. And it materially changes what kind of content is being shown? Because yes, you also have um, you also have movies and so on being shown, but even they are interrupted by advertisements. Often, um, you've got like daytime TV that is told in such a way that you can follow what's going on, even if you do some chores on the side. You have to cook a little, you know. But you know these typical situations. Uh, like you watch a show and it stops, advertisements run, and then you see like the last two minutes again that you had already seen. And when you fully focus on it, you just think like, oh God, this again. <laughs> but of course, it's made for people. That's The TV in, in that sense 
this this form of storytelling is made for people that do other things on the side, and that's that's perfectly fine. But that would be an example to illustrate on how the materiality of two different media, two different media forms, influences the way that stories in that medium are being told, and how they're made too. I think uh, as you were describing that stuff, on I, I thought of how, you know, until um, just a few decades ago, home home video was not something that was in the zeitgeist. So when filmmakers were creating films, it was meant to be seen on the screen in the dark with the surround, with your popcorn in hand and with hopefully nobody talking near you. So to think of, um, you know, nowadays, especially after the pandemic, movies and film are being made assuming you're going to watch it at home in your home theater. And I think that that is very relatable to video games with it's not it's not assumed that you're going to be you know sitting down in a in a movie theater and playing a game of halo although maybe that's to be devoutly wished but um it it does make you think all right how are we how are we uh receiving this media that we're engaging with yeah and another example to be a little bit more contemporary maybe is uh something like netflix and streaming services right because you just mentioned like home home media vhs tapes and now we are in a situation where we watch things on streaming services where we can pause where we can rewind where we can just easily rewatch all the seasons of game of thrones which also means that tv shows can turn into something that's usually referred to as like quality tv so tv shows that are extensively complicated there are so many characters such intricate nuanced stories to tell because you can just say you can pause you can rewatch things at any given point you can binge throughout an entire season and that is also a way in which like streaming had a profound impact on how stories are being told and i think same things are shall be observable in the domain of, of video games as well which is what we would look at a little bit closer in the case of the steam deck right yeah, I think the the same things, but also I think in in some ways it's an even more interesting and pressing matter to think about in video games, right? Because I think when you have questions of materiality and the mode of presentation in other media like film or TV shows, people oftentimes rightly have the impression that to the extent that that materiality is actually part of the story's content, the story is what we commonly refer to as meta, right? There's this sense that it's aware that it's a story and it's being presented and it's kind of this weird feeling that takes you out of the story by making you aware that it is a story, right? And as you guys were talking about Netflix, I thought of the just wonderful example of this in um, Black Mirror Bandersnatch, right? Have you have you guys both seen Bandersnatch or played Bandersnatch? Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know what even what the term is for it that we want to call it. Um, like a player own player own adventure um, short yes. movie. I think it's like a, a Black Mirror thing, right? Yeah, it's a Black Mirror yeah. thing. Watch your own adventure. That's probably the best term for it. It's a watch your own watch adventure. Your own adventure. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> there's there's a very you know there's a very quote meta moment in that right where one of the paths that you can go down is actually making the main character aware that he's in a Netflix show right and you you tell him that through the choices you make right and, and so I think people oftentimes assume that any reference within a story to its materiality is going to be meta in that very way. But I think one of the reasons that it's really interesting to talk about with something like hardware on the Steam Deck is that the materiality in video games, by virtue of them being interactive, 
it doesn't have to draw the person engaging with the story out of the story in order to make a difference to the story, right? Because the player is an agent within the story already. And so changing their modes of engagement with that story is going to fundamentally change the way that the narrative works in a way that you might imagine is not the same for a film or a novel, where certainly the materiality is going to change the person's experience of that story, but that's not necessarily going to fall down stream and have consequences to the content of the story itself, you might think, right? Um, so I, I think to, to ground this just before we go back to the Steam Deck, right, I, I got really interested in this with the Switch, and, and I hope we can still see some of these come to light, because you might imagine things like, um, think about the dynamic ways in which you can have different inputs to the Switch, right? They're your typical kind of, you know, analog button controls and control sticks, but it also has all of the motion controls, right? And things that are kind of like upgraded versions of what the Wii was trying to do way, way, way back in the day, what, like 2007? or something at this point it's time is crazy guys i'm I'm having a little bit of an existential crisis about time these days but uh but you could imagine right so it's it's interesting in the first instance to have those different control modalities but then you could imagine a kind of game that actually makes special meaning out of those where like you know as, as a toy example right imagine that you know you're controlling i think i used in the article the example of a robot avatar right that you're able to manipulate by pressing like the x and a buttons and control sticks or whatever but then within the context of the game's fiction you can also do this thing of like imbuing your human soul in the robot and giving it more power by using those motion controls and being more kinesthetically attached to what the avatar is doing right so by using those controls instead you actually change your mode of engagement and change the content of the fiction right in a way that's probably i would say not having played the remake of skyward sword yet but materially different than what nintendo did with that saying just oh here are these two different modes of engagement you can have with the same story, right? That's the kind of dynamism I think that can, you know, not only give players different ways of experiencing story, but could actually impact the story in, in, uh, by virtue of making new stories possible. And I think that's really cool. Well, I think a, a, a concrete example of this having happened already with a piece of hardware is uh, Breath of the Wild. Um, I think that the, the idea of the Sheikah Slate being such a integral part to the story and history of the world in Breath of the Wild and also clearly being a reference to the tool that you are using to engage with it. That's the kind of thing that on the surface seems really maybe pedestrian or obvious, but that's a really interesting thing that Breath of the Wild did where I agree, Aaron. So Skyward Sword, I think, gestured at it um, with the sword and the, um, the Wii Motion Plus but it didn't quite connect as much because that was more of a story about the Master Sword and not so much about the Wii Motion Plus. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> I think you could say, I think you could say that Breath of the Wild is very much a world in which this technology that's being called out is integral to the the world that you're engaging with. So whether you're using the Wii U um, gamepad on the Breath of the Wild Wii U version or the Switch, I think that um, what what excites me about the Steam Deck is wouldn't it be cool like to have a game like uh, Cyberpunk, which I'm surprised we haven't talked more about. <laughs> but wouldn't it be cool to have a game like that where it actually it uses the the um, different modalities of the deck to kind of make you feel like you are in a world where you're surrounded by technology or moving between different 
um, you know, modes of engaging with virtual reality or, or what have you. I mean, we're, we're kind of pontificating, but I think this is the kind of stuff I'd like to see from hardware like this. No, but we're, we're pontificating in a way I think that is material to where games are and where games hopefully are going with their storytelling, right? I mean, you, you make the great point about Breath of the Wild. Some listeners may know that I think it's anything but pedestrian because I think that's actually one of the key pieces of elements to analyzing Link as less of a person and more of a drone uh, in terms of the story of Breath of the Wild. And we can link that article for the 10th time or whatever in the show notes. Um, But you're right. I think exactly those kinds of modalities, you know, I think too about the ways in which like something as simple as having the game represented on a big screen versus being taken into the handheld mode could represent different worlds. Think about something like a cyberpunk scenario, right? Where like, you know, you play the game on the main screen and then by making the game portable, it's not just taking that game somewhere else, but actually allowing you to access like some kind of brain punk, you know, like cybernet within the mind of your avatar. Well, no, I mean, laugh, but that's that's basically what Nier Automata did, right? And this could give you an even richer way of engaging with that kind of storytelling, right? To say nothing of the fact that like, you know, based on the extent to which you can make geolocation services possible, you could even have really cool multiplayer scenarios where players who are engaging with other players get their avatars proportionately more empowered based on how close they are to other players, actually encouraging people to do like um, close in-person co-op as opposed to just the totally disengaged, like far off internet engagement that is becoming more and more the norm in days where split screen isn't even a thing. Right. So I, I think it's, it's pontification, but it's, it's well-grounded theory in the sense of like, Hey, this is actually where video game story innovation could go. And that's really cool. My question to maybe bring it back to the steam deck is to what extent, are those new modalities going to make new things possible in the PC world versus just regurgitating a lot of the flexibility and dynamism that is already intrinsic to what PC gaming is? I think that's the thing because the modalities of engagement that you just uh, have thrown around a little bit with doubtlessly exciting ideas is something that I could see uh, Nintendo doing or any kind of other manufacturer that makes uh, specifically focuses on mobile games such as, you know, Pokemon Go and something like that. However, um, I think that's not the direction that the Steam Deck is going to go. My my expectation is actually that it's its unique selling point is being completely ununique in the sense that it says <laughs> y- y- you you just you can just take your take your PC games on the go. The games are not going to change. There's not going to be any anything specific that happens textually with the game, but they just try to offer you various means and with to with which to engage with the game that try to uh, simulate, emulate, or reproduce the ways of engagement that you have on a local PC. I do think that that points to um, something that I think was also very valuable about the switch, which even if we, you know, cause I know I, I would, I would love to see incredible things like that. It would be cool to see what, um, different developers or even like steam Greenlight people do with the potential of, you know, a more mobile PC. Um, but I think that, uh, at the, at the very base, what this can do is, um, uh, I'm going to I'm going to borrow an anecdote from my brother Matt. So my brother Matt um never played Skyrim until it came to the Switch. Mm. And the reason was because he could put it down and he felt like it was like 
engaging with just like a like a mobile game basically and so he finished skyrim on the switch because the different the change in presentation made it more inviting to him and i think that um that kind of makes me feel like uh you know the idea of um uh we have we have in our notes reading a book in bed you know and it's sort of like well there's a difference between sitting down and engaging with something on a big tv versus taking your switch or your ds and you know just kind of quietly playing a game at night which i think is very similar to when you maybe read a book to drift off you know maybe maybe this will open the door for people to engage with games they wouldn't have otherwise done so I think that your brother's example of Skyrim is a really great one too, Dan, because um, I, I actually, I haven't finished Skyrim to this day, but I did get the Switch version. Yeah. And I think a lot of people probably did. In uh, my pet theory is they did just because of that great commercial that Nintendo did back when the Switch came out. Do you guys remember this? Where uh, I think it's a guy is on an airplane and he just pulls out the Switch and starts playing Skyrim, right? And that idea of being like trapped in a really boring real world situation with no optionality for things to do and being able to just reach into your pocket and pull out this fantasy world, that is really cool, right? Even if it doesn't affect like fundamentally new kinds of stories, like you're right, that is not to be understated in its value, right? And and I too, I mean, I, I don't know what it is about like about like being able to engage with the story in bed, but you're right. It's like, that's such a special and cool way to be able to play games that simply wasn't possible or feasible in many ways before this kind of handheld tech came out. So that is exciting. Yeah. I think it's going to, it's going to affect it in, in two ways. One is that we're going to be able to do such a thing like taking a final fantasy seven remake, uh, basically while we're, while we're chilling in bed or while we're traveling. And uh, this, I think, also changes the way that in which people with which people uh, sorry it changes the way with which people sorry no it must be in it changes the way in which people interact uh, with the game as in they when i completed final fantasy 10 i think the final fantasy 10 remake on ps vita it was much more convenient for me to go through it and get the platinum trophy because there's so much grinding and I could do it while I was in actually in the lecture in the philosophy lecture on formal logic and I, I was already I was already a bit ahead I was a bit I, I loved formal logic like I loved it and I studied it quite intensely at home and the lecture was just it was just too slow and I, I it, it was a little bit like daytime TV for me I was just listening to it a little bit and playing the playing Final Fantasy 7 under the desk and I think that's something that the Steam Deck would enable us to do. So it basically makes it possible to engage with such things like extensive JRPGs uh, on the go. Well, I think I, I remember an anecdote you told, Stefan, about your engagement with Persona 4 Golden. Yeah. When you were you were sick and you just sort of lost yourself in this little screen. And I think that, yeah, if, I mean, if we're talking about JRPGs, I will uh, absolutely say that I think that maybe people will be more enticed to complete them if they don't have to feel like they're sitting in front of a TV for 80 hours, you know? I think it's interesting to think about these different modes of engagement, um, kicking back to what we were talking about, about, you know, the experiences of people with stories, uh, because you're right, certainly something like a daytime soap is meant in some ways to be experienced in a different way than say something like a Breaking Bad, let alone a, a full feature movie in a cinema, right? And I do think giving 
people that optionality for something like JRPGs is really interesting and probably valuable, right? I just worry in this age where it seems like so many gamers are getting more literate and engaged with the best storytelling of games, like giving them an opportunity to, in one way or another, let's call it what it is, tune out when they're playing some of those best stories of all time for the first time. I know there's a little part of me that worries about that, but maybe I'm being an old fogey in that regard. To actually take your position as you as you so often do in these podcasts of being the optimist, I think that um, the risk you run and why I'm so excited about the Steam Deck is that it, I think it does take that the gatekeeping away a little bit, where um, it may have been the case that people felt um, either intimidated by the length of something or that they just didn't have the capability to play something if it was strictly on PC and they didn't have the money um, to get a nice PC gaming rig. I think that um, any engagement is better than no engagement. And, you know, if they're bored by it, they're bored by it, right? But I think that um, if they engage with any game in a way that makes them more comfortable with it, hey, I'd rather you you read and half understand something than say, I'm not going to read that. That's a totally fair point. I would also agree with you, Aaron. I, I also find it sad when it, th there are games that basically are perfect and that lend themselves to basically playing them with half a brain. That's exactly what they're made for. And that can also <laughs> that can also make it really cool, you know? Like, of course, you're not going to sit there and be, like, uh, super engaged in something like, you know, Candy Crush. And that's that's fine. That's exactly what, what it's for. But... On the other hand, the, the nice thing about the Steam Deck is that you definitely can plug it in, uh, throw it into the deck, and play it on the big screen. Because what I've always been wondering is, um, who would say, ah, I'd really love to play Doom on the Switch, you know? Like, I would, I would my, my, my assumption would be <laughs> that people are like, if you get Doom on your Switch, then it's probably because you don't have a PC that you can play Doom on, you know? Whereas on something like the Steam Deck, you can be like, you can have both. You can have both both worlds, basically. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can have Doom and you can play it in this lean forward position on your desk with mouse and keyboard. And then you can just unplug the thing. You can take it out of the, the dock, uh, take it on the train and play like, let's say, a visual novel or Papers, Please or something like that. Uh, something that really is, is, I would also say, it it, it is gives you some responsibility as a player to decide for yourself which games are more uh, suitable for playing it on the go. I think that's good. It's it is definitely going to be one one step in the direction of blurring the lines, right, between between PC gaming and handheld gaming. That's exactly what it strives to do. I think it is well put. I I think to kick back that idea of a player responsibility and different experiences based on different modes to um, something we were talking about much earlier in the specs. <laughs> this is something else where like one might not think that it would make a big difference, but at least based on my experience with the switch, it, it can really have an unexpected impact on your gaming. Just the idea of in contrast to something like playing, especially on a PC battery life anxiety, right? Mm. Where <laughs> if you don't know when your game is going to like, crash or you're going to run out of power on this handheld thing like the limited or altered amount of attention you may already be um 
diverting to the game might be further mitigated by this concern of not knowing how long you're going to have access to it, right? And that that's always a real thing for me when I take my Switch on the road. I mean, I try to put it out of my head, um, but in situations when there's not a charger nearby to just plug it into, I always have to have an eye on the, on the battery bar. And that's really distracting when you're trying to engage with the game. Yeah, I, I totally get that. You think am I going to play Breath of the Wild now for an hour or two or am I going to play a visual novel and then it lasts for the next six hours, you know? Uh, yeah. That's definitely yeah. something. Like it, <laughs> handheld gaming is a little bit more, it's a little bit more sophisticated as in you need to make more choices when you, when you, when you have this thing in your hands. I think it was Birth by Sleep that I was playing on the PSP years and years ago and I was playing it on a flight and it was during like one of the climactic battles or cutscenes that it gave me the critical battery message and I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do now, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's kind of the worst case scenario of exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that is really painful. And I mean, one thing, maybe one concern that I do have about this, uh, the Steam Deck is that it I could see that it might end up lacking an identity yeah. because the thing is that when you have a game being announced, then a question you regularly hear is, oh, is it going to come to Switch? You know, because people like playing games on their Switch, whereas there will no one will ask the question, is this going to run on Steam Deck? Because yes, of course, it's it's probably on unless it's like not on Steam or on any on Epic Games or any any platform really, but. It's just not, it doesn't have a profile. It doesn't have uh, exclusive games. It's a similar thing, right? That happened to the Steam machines way back when. And they said, like, we have this super cool thing. Here's our new OS. Please produce Steam machines. And everyone was like, yeah, okay. And it was like very cautious. And I'm not sure how well they're doing still. I do wonder about that because uh, I'm thinking back to our conversation about Ratchet and Clank, Stefan, where Sony has a very clear identity just as Nintendo does. And one of the reasons that um, I've kind of fallen off with, with Xbox, because I used to love my Xbox 360, but a huge reason I think that I've, I've gone over to the Sony camp is that, I mean, outside of like Halo, I really don't know what Xbox has. The flight Simulator. It, it, the flight simulator, sure. <laughs> well, I think I think that it, it, it is a concern because on the one hand, I would say it's almost nice that we're reaching this singularity of all hardware being generally the same, you know, kind of getting to the point where it's almost indistinguishable. You mentioned the SSD that it's going to have. Like that's a big selling point of, of a PlayStation 5, right, to cut back on these loading times. But I think that the thing that would make me choose a PlayStation 5 over an Xbox Series X is not the SSD. It would be games like Ratchet and Clank or God of War or, you know, the, the Final Fantasy exclusivity, things like that, right? So I, 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 do, I do wonder about that, if that's going to maybe make it kind of fade into, you know, just beige generality. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know, though. I think to take, to take the contrarian point... Uh... <laughs> Uh, um, this time myself, uh, I think there's interesting stuff happening where at least some of these, you know, giant monolithic publishers are understanding the harmony between hardware and storytelling. Like I, I still haven't gotten over, um, Sony buying Housemark. 
after Returnal, mm. right? Um, yeah. I think that that said a lot to me, and all the more as I lost myself in this analysis of Returnal that's going to be coming out this coming week. But I think those those creators of hardware and story that have an identity like Story, uh, excuse me, like Sony, I think um, are doing really interesting things with innovating um, both in story and hardware simultaneously, right? Like maybe hardware is going to approach a singularity, but I think, you know, Nintendo is going to come out with something after the switch to, you know, continue to play around with its hardware in the way that only Nintendo does. And Sony, I mean, I think we've still, we haven't even touched the surface yet of what's possible with things like haptic feedback where, you know, they've been shouting it from the rooftops without, I think, even understanding the range of stories that could be told or affected through that. Um, and, and to have really interesting and novel developers under their umbrella of Sony Interactive, I think only speaks to the fact that that's where they're directing their efforts in the future. So maybe a little bit of a singularity, but I think also more specialized and nuanced hardware that really makes a, a subtle but important difference as we get further down the line. Yeah, that is, that is going to be something that Nintendo will have to do because if we think about it this way that... Nintendo has ha- has had a pretty uh, comfortable position on the market so far because it basically completely dominated the handheld market. The PS Vita has been dead for quite a while now. And now this thing comes around, Valve comes around and says like, <laughs> hi, <laughs> a new challenger approaches. <laughs> it's like, it's, suddenly Nintendo is in this situation that they do have their exclusives. They do have Mario, Zelda, they do have Animal Crossing and Pokemon. And it's all really cool. But aside from that, there's, and motion controls, there's not really that much now remaining when the Steam Deck comes out because this Switch feature of taking things on the go, taking a console on the go, uh, basically has been seized by by Valve now as well. So I think that's going to push Nintendo to think really think about where are we going to go next with the Switch? What are we going to do to maintain our profile as Nintendo and I by the way I don't worry about Nintendo I think they're gonna be perfectly fine they're not gonna freak out being like oh god what they're doing no, 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 they're gonna no, be no. cool my favorite little factoid and it might even be apocryphal but it's that uh Nintendo dominated the market so well in the late 80s and early 90s between the Nintendo entertainment system the Famicom and then the Game Boy that uh they could fail I think they could be in the they could be in the they could fail for like 30 years. They could make it to 2050 without making a profit and they'd be okay. I think that's the that's the story of Nintendo's. <laughs> They've been around making Hanafuda cards for, you know, almost yeah. 200 years. They're going to be just fine. <laughs> well, okay, I would say let's let's round it off here because the thing is that there is a, a lot more to talk about and I think we're going to have to think about the way in which the materiality of something like the Steam Deck impacts the way stories are being told a little bit further down the line from various different perspectives. We can definitely make that a distinguished episode. And also, we're probably going to pick up on it at the latest when this thing actually comes out and we actually have a chance to to get our hands on it and see because that's eventually uh, what we really rely on. And um, that's why I would say let's close it off here at this point. We've been going way over time already. Uh, (laughs) And hop straight into some side quests. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we talk about further things that happened in video game culture, things that interest us. And of course, 
we're going to dive a little bit further into Netflix, with which we've already mentioned before. Uh, I brought an article called Netflix to offer video games on its streaming platform by Mark German, published on Bloomberg.com. Before I go into the details, I want to disclaim that um, this is actually based on rumors predominantly. So uh, we don't know much for sure yet. What we do know, though, is that Netflix has dabbled in the direction of gaming in the past already. Um, we've already mentioned Bandersnatch, actually, as one of its interactive um, interactive movies or interactive shows that it, that it has produced. Uh, there's also a Minecraft story mode on Netflix, I think. Like, these are very, fairly simplistic when it comes to interaction because you can just choose you want to do A or you want to do B. Uh, they've also seized the licenses to games that are based on its original content, such as the Stranger Things uh, game. And now they went ahead and hired former executives from EA and from Facebook, specifically the Facebook department that works on the Oculus Rift or the Oculus VR. I don't know uh, what it's called exactly now. I think it's just called Oculus, Facebook Oculus or something. They've also got a couple of announcements, uh, job announcements on their website, specifically Netflix writes on their on their own website, quote, the opportunity before us is to expand our slate of interactive innovations and capabilities, including, but not limited to, new types of features, game-like experiences, and different ways of interacting with stories, end quote. You can find that job listing in our show notes. And the insider that Mark Gurnham from Bloomberg has spoken to, he says that um, the games that will be on Netflix, like there will be an, an extra tab on it, and it will appear as a genre, as a programming genre, similarly to how uh, Netflix handled documentaries and stand-up uh, specials. Um, he says, quote, the company doesn't currently plan to charge extra for the content, um, said the person, now this is referring to this insider, who asked not to be identified because the deliberations are private, end quote. This obviously happens uh, in the context of a market in which Netflix still is the leader in streaming services, but increasingly comes under pressure because we know that Disney has removed all of its content and put it on Disney+. Plus. Uh, HBO Max is around, Amazon Prime is gaining traction, and there's also something like Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, so um, the... Uh, Note on which this article ends is, quote, ultimately, the move may make it easier for Netflix to justify price increases in coming years, end quote. The idea is that Netflix might launch a service, a video game streaming service as part of Netflix, somewhere in 2022. And as I've been checking up on the story before uh, we started recording this today, I found some further information that's also interesting and also based on rumors. It comes from the data miner Steve Moser, who uh, dug through the Netflix iOS app. And he found something really interesting because he found a, a couple of pictures. One of them is the Netflix game logo, right? Which is something that you would click on in the app. He also found an image of the like an abstract model of two DualSense controllers, which is strange because this hints that there's some connection to PlayStation. And what he also found then is the cover art of Ghost of Tsushima. So huh. it indicates, and this is really just a rumor, it, it seems pretty likely that Netflix is going to launch a gaming service 
in 2022 somewhere. And there seems to be a hint that they might even be partnering up with Sony. It's not yet clear what it will be, whether it will whether Sony will have uh, their games streamable on Netflix or whether it will be some kind of like spin-off things that are specifically for Netflix. So we don't know any of that yet. There will be announcements, I would assume, somewhere throughout this year or somewhere throughout the beginning of next year. But it seems increasingly likely that Netflix will go further in the direction of becoming also a video game streaming service. I have two thoughts about it. Um, I'll just put under the umbrella, I think it's entirely plausible that this would happen. My two thoughts are one on the Ghost of Tsushima uh, connection. I know that there have been, um, I've been reading about the the film rumors and I wonder, you know, that would be a lot of interesting connective tissue with more movies coming to streaming platforms, kind of skirting the cinemas. Um, and that just reminds me of uh, the Ratchet and Clank film and how that was so tied into the game that happened. So Sony's, they've done things like that before is my point. The second thing I think is that um, I, I wonder because of the uh, the Twitch connection to Amazon, if this might not be trying to infiltrate that market as well. This idea of these, you know, streaming platforms having connections to, um, you know, video game streamers or or what have you, kind of trying to trying to diversify the market a little bit because Twitch is kind of the only game in town right now. Look, I try to be excited about this kind of news. I tend to be more just exhausted by it. I think, you know, I'm, I'm playing through Scarlet Nexus right now. One of the side quests wants me to watch a Scarlet Nexus TV show. I mean, I think various, various kinds of translation of stories across media can be very interesting and very warranted. I used to say that a story that was created as a video game had no business being a film at all because a proper video game story takes as one aspect of its essence, that interactivity and makes special meaning out of it. I still think that premise is true, but I don't think it follows that you can't translate a video game story into other media. The key is that the storyteller just has to understand the essence of the story qua video game and translate it into something that similarly uses the core features of the other medium, right? So does something that could only be represented as a film as opposed to something that just takes a tired film formula and pastes video game IP onto it, right? I think the thing that makes me nervous and exhausted is just especially when I see this constant regurgitation or reiteration of content that all of these massive companies are doing because let's face it it's easier than actually creating new content i i worry that that care will not be taken when things like you know putting films and tv shows and video games under one umbrella happens and any given ip is represented as all of them i worry that it's just going to be cut and paste plug and play of let's take your favorite really thoughtful video games and put them into this different medium so that you can just see more in that world without actually thinking about how to represent it in a compelling way. So I worry. I try to maintain hope because I get on some level that's where things are going, but I worry. Apart from the fact of how transmedia storytelling, because that's, I would say, the, the term to describe this phenomenon it can it can be done well and it can be done pretty poorly uh, however the direction that my thoughts spiral into 
is what does this mean for game streaming services? Because we know that Google Stadia uh, made a very, <laughs> let's say, an interesting attempt and then completely fell on its face. Um, You're being very charitable there, <laughs> <laughs> and And now, what if, just like, just speculating, what if, hypothetically, Sony said, okay, we're going to bring our games to Netflix, let's say one year or two years after they had been released on the PlayStation. And then you can stream them and you can connect your DualSense controller to Netflix. So basically, what if Netflix goes, what if Netflix becomes what PlayStation now attempts to be at the moment? Like this is something that I try to imagine and I'm not sure whether we are quite there yet because thus far video game streaming services have never reached the quality that I would wish for for a streaming service to reach before I could would use it as my main platform. But Netflix is a big player and has a huge infrastructure and a big network. And if they were to commit to this, which I'm not absolutely not certain that they would, because they make their prime their primary business is uh, shows, dramas, documentaries, and so on. I could imagine that they use this primarily to bring people in, to get like basically harp on the huge basis of people who play video games to get them subscribed to Netflix. But who knows? Who knows what will happen? Yeah. And it, it may be the case too, Steph, because I agree with you. I don't think there's ever been a satisfactory game streaming service. It's not even close. But maybe, maybe the the kind of the the peanut butter to Netflix and the chocolate to, you know, Sony or whoever they partner with, maybe Netflix will be able to kind of say, Well, we have all of this experience streaming. We know the pitfalls of it. Um, and so even though we're talking about different media, the you know, the experience that we've had here may actually bridge the gap and make something palatable. Um, I think at that point, then it just comes down to, well, I just can't imagine these big companies, you know, the big three, let's call them, right? Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony. I wonder, you know, if any of them would feel comfortable kind of cannibalizing their own library like that. Because I do think mm. if they said, all right, you know, we will have this agreement with Netflix well, would that be a joint agreement where they would be available on both platforms? Or would it be like saying, okay, PlayStation owners, all the things that you're used to here, you got to get a Netflix subscription no, no. now, right? <laughs> yeah, that would be a problem. <laughs> I think it, it raises the question, though, of whom it's for, uh, not unlike what we were talking about with the Steam Deck, right? And I'll, I'll say, as someone who would, I, I think it's safe to say on principle that I would never use Netflix for this, right? But I'll also say this, right? When I turn on my awesome PS5 play, uh, you know, uh, spaceship and go into space and start exploring in it with my PS Plus subscription, when I see the constant, like, advertisements for PS Now, I say to myself, well, I already have PS Plus. I own my games. I like owning them. I already feel a little shady about the games with the plus icon that, you know, I can only play while I have PS Plus. What is my incentive to try PS Now, right? And telling me yeah. I'm going to get it for like a month free. That's not going to do it for me, right? So I could see from Sony's perspective, 
if there are other people with my mindset saying like, well, why don't we just try that streaming service as a way of capturing people who are not already in our ecosystem and try to get some Netflix subscribers gaming who don't already game, right? So I, I definitely don't see it going the way of saying you need a Netflix subscription to play PlayStation games. Like, I don't think that would make sense for anyone, but I, I could see a strategy there to bring more people into gaming who are not gaming right now. Yeah, I could I could see it. my money is on it's going to be like Sony bringing its exclusives to uh, the PC which they have previously done as well, you know, um, Horizon Zero Dawn you can play on the PC and I think my guess is somewhere in it's uh, just my my uh, prediction in somewhere in autumn 2022 uh, Netflix will announce this it will come late in the year and it will mean that like let's say two to three years after their release, the games are going to be available in an optimized, like streaming optimized form on Netflix with a connectable controller. And obviously Netflix will have some kind of original games as well. That's my expectation because they're going to just throw money at it like no tomorrow. And they're going to be mostly games that can be easily played with something like even an Apple Apple TV remote, like more touch interface based uh, games, more like mobile games. That's my expectation. But yeah, we'll see about that. Um, what, Aaron, you just mentioned game ownership, and I think that's a perfect segue into the into our next side quest because there's been an auction again. <laughs> yes. So in in continuing with my, I'm watching the I'm I'm watching the game market. Everybody, the old timey game market. Uh, I uh, wanted to bring up this story. So last week we talked about the auction for the Legend of Zelda that went for nearly a million dollars. Well, um, our favorite Italian mustachioed plumber has come in and said, I can certainly top that. It's a me. Um, it, it's oh, right. Luigi's Mansion? A vintage yes. copy of Luigi's Mansion? Luigi's <laughs> <laughs> an, opened, an opened and scratched copy of Luigi's Mansion <laughs> covered... Covered in bubble gum has sold for three million dollars. No, the, actually the, found <laughs> inside a vacuum cleaner. I heard that's that's right. No, the uh, my my side quest today is uh, is in regard to this story um, that uh, an unopened copy of Super Mario sixty four was sold for one point five six million dollars mm. um, at auction, which is a uh, just insane amount of money to me when not talking about a video game that went for that price. So I, I've uh, looked into this article um, on Slate by Aaron Mack, um, and I found that he had a really interesting take on it because he kind of gave some context to what, what led to this. Because it's strange, even even between these two stories, I almost believe the Zelda one where I think that's a you know that's an unopened copy of the Legend of Zelda that's a game that means and uh, it's a very old game it means a lot to people it was in this very good condition that we talked about I can see that going for that much this number surprised me for Super Mario 64 and what's funny is uh Aaron Mack links a video to the auction where the auctioneer is surprised. She basically all but says, "Really?" <laughs> <laughs> and so and so it, it, yeah, and, and and I kind of agree with her because as much as I love Mario, um, that number is kind of baffling. And so Aaron Mack goes into what led to this, and it was basically a perfect mixture of the pandemic leading to people 
um, indulging in nostalgia. Um, people who collect things like comic books wanting to diversify their collection um, and take it outside of just the realm of comics and, and old comic memorabilia. And then also um, something that I'm woefully ignorant on, um, but I know Aaron knows more about, is this idea of like for, somehow this is also tied into the cryptocurrency and NFT non-fungible token um, boom that's been happening. So I think it's kind of like this weird, perfect nexus of all of these things that have been happening over the past two years where that kind of explains the number that this game went for. I should also say this game was in much better condition than the Zelda game that was sold. I think this was rated a 9.8. Zelda was rated a 9. But, but we have to do a little bit of PSA work there. How does this relate to cryptocurrency and NFT? Because I don't even firmly understand what both of these things are really, but primarily NFT. But could you shed some light on that, Aaron? Ah, Aaron Saduko <laughs> here. Please allow me to take off my founder of with a terrible fate hat and put on my digital asset finance hat. <laughs> um, no, it's it's funny. Dan is totally right, uh, and it's interesting because you know one of my other hobbies where I lurk in collectibles is I love watching auctions for um, the original artwork that artists make for cards in Magic the Gathering. And you see exactly the same thing happening there over the last few months. Like the the average prices at which these pieces are sold have gone up to crazy amounts. Um, to say nothing of the fact that they just did a tie-in with a um, like a Dungeons and Dragons themed set for the first time, and I think exactly like Dan says, because of the compounding effect of nostalgia on top of the collectible, like some of these paintings went for like forty thousand dollars plus, where they usually go for like probably between five and eight thousand. So you definitely see increases in prices. Um, as as crypto analyst man, I would say a couple things, right? One is that um, over the last few months, there were significant booms in the prices of major flagship cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether, right? And so people who are already engaged in those markets, um, which have significant overlap with markets like gaming and people who are into collecting, um, people who are already exposed to cryptocurrencies saw significant gains there. And so as much as it could be, you know, comic book collectors diversifying their existing holdings, uh, I think a big part of it is also like retail investors um, in the in the crypto world wanting to diversify if suddenly they wake up and their holdings in Bitcoin or Ether are worth like five or 10 times as much as they were when they first put their money in, right? Be because they see it as as kind of an investment as much as anything else, or the opportunity to own pieces of history in um, you know in collectibles or areas of interest that they've had across their whole life, right? It's a weird confluence, and so I know I am more terminally online than either of you, so I can also <laughs> provide some some context for um, you know. Uh, early during the pandemic, there was a massive boom in Pokemon cards, um, due in large part to YouTuber and disgraceful person, Logan Paul, who, um, bought these old packs and was auctioning them off. And he, at the same time, and currently I won't get into it, but is kind of dealing in the crypto space and doing some kind of strange things there. And so it is just this weird 
thing where, Aaron, like you were talking about, I think there's a lot of overlap between the people who um, engage with with crypto speculation and people who collect nostalgic things like uh, collectible cards, comic books, and video games. And so it really is just this ramp up where a, a copy of Super Mario 64 went for $1.56 million. There's this really funny kind of, of backtracing effect that happens too, Dan, because, you know, one of the other things you mentioned was NFTs, which stands for people who don't know for non-fungible cannot fungible fund these. Which is basically a, that's right, no funging allowed. No, but it, it's basically just like provably scarce and unique digital assets, right? So anyone who has been in the crypto space for better or worse for as long as I have might remember crypto kitties, which was basically like cryptocurrency enabled beanie babies, right? Where each one of these NFTs was pegged to a provably unique cartoon representation of a digital cat. I mean, you, you can't make this up. This is like one of the first NFTs and some of these sold for literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? But I think as... As cryptocurrencies have boomed and you see significant growth in Bitcoin and Ether, the next thing that a lot of people moved to was NFTs as these provably scarce collectibles, which they were hoping to see appreciate in value even more. And then interestingly, I think even though NFTs are like a, a digital derivative of what normal collectibles already were, I think that mindset has led a lot of people interested in crypto back to physical like things. original actual physical collectibles, right? It's, it's I have funny. to interject a little bit. For a person like me who doesn't even own a credit card, <laughs> I'm just going to summarize. If And you, you you tell me whether I, I understood this correctly. So we have this cryptocurrency and there's a huge boom in cryptocurrency. So it's uh, like people who own uh, quite a bit of cryptocurrency, they find themselves having a, a bit of disposable income. Let's let's put it that way. So that their assets are valued, uh, are more have more value than they initially had, maybe even like before the pandemic specifically. Now, there's this drive towards nostalgia and people say, okay, I'm gonna just buy this uh, this particular copy, um, even though it's like, it might not, might not actually be worth that much generally, but- Most certainly. But it's like, the price has increased so much now i'm going to i'm going to buy it and i'm going to hold on to it i'm going to see it as either a collectible because i really care for super mario or i'm going to keep it for let's say 20 years and then i'm going to sell it on for even double the price or something like that and then i'm going to essentially be a millionaire in my mind it comes down to what dan said really well as the perfect storm right because one of the other sentiments that is just part of the DNA of a big part of the crypto sector is what's called uh, just HODL, which here's, here's a little bit of Bitcoin trivia for anyone who's interested in that. Way back when Bitcoin was first becoming kind of a, a thing in which people could invest back in like, I think this was around maybe 20... 11 2010 uh and everyone was just talking about it on a few forums this one like now legend in the sector who was just like drunkenly posting advocating for bitcoin on the forums misspelled the word hold and he said hodl instead but what he was trying to say was 
just hold your Bitcoin, which is to say, don't sell it, just hold on to it because this is just the beginning and it's going to appreciate in value so much over time. And obviously he was right. This was back when you could buy Bitcoin for like a few dollars, if that. And now I, I don't watch the charts, but we're in like tens of thousands of dollars, right? So, I mean, you can do the math, right? But that's to say it's especially given that cryptocurrencies are still in such early innings and NFTs earlier innings still there's this deeply entrenched mindset of if you hold on to these things for long enough, they will eventually accrue huge value to them, right? And when you compound that with the intrinsic sentiments of nostalgia that people attach to things such that they might already want to own these things one way or another, I, I can totally get how you would see these prices based on people who have the means saying, well, I'm going to buy this. It's something that's deeply meaningful to me. And so I'll be holding it for a long time anyway. And because of you know the impact it has or the cultural significance, it will probably end up being much more valuable than this eventually anyways. Dear listeners out there, this was our tiny cryptocurrency PSA segment of this video game, <laughs> this video game podcast. <laughs> I think that is the, the financial speculation side of things. I am much more into the cultural preservation and almost librarianism of keeping these old games. So I will not be on the podcast next week um, because I will be um, attending uh, Game Fest in Austin, Texas. Um, which is uh, a celebration of classic games um, where, as I understand it, dozens if not hundreds of vendors show up to kind of sell their wares. So um, I I will be going not to buy a uh, copy of Super Mario 64 for Are you take a couple of one and a half million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just hoping to... F- Give my regards to the Rockefellers. Yeah, I'm just hoping to find Fatal Frame 2. So we'll see how it well, goes. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your impressions then, possibly in two weeks. And uh, dear listeners out there, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy this show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. Of course, feel free to leave some reviews on Apple Podcasts and find all our written content on withaterriblefate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. And we'll talk again next week. See you then.